It's a different world since Hodder Education last hosted 1,500 students and teachers at the Hazard Student Conference in 2019. But great news, they are extremely excited to announce that they are getting the band back together again in November 2022. Inspire your A-level geography students by bringing them along to hear from the expert panel, including Dr. Martin Degg, Professor Fiona Tweed and Professor David Pedley in Nottingham, Manchester and London on the 18th, 23rd and 25th of November. Visit www.hoddereducation.co.uk forward slash hazards hyphen 2022 to explore the full lineup and program as well as the chance to provisionally book your students' places. Thanks for joining me today for another job pod. Today, I'm joined by Professor Alex Densmore, who's Professor and Deputy Head of Departments at Durham University in the Geography Department. Welcome to job pod, Alex. Thanks very much for having me, John. It's a real pleasure. And well, I think the pleasure is going to be mine, actually. <laughs> you're, uh, this is going to be fascinating because I've, I've done a little bit of reading. Your bio says you're interested in the way in which mountains are built through tectonic activity and in the erosional processes that tear them back down again. So we're into a deep time with some of this, but you you actually grew up uh, on the, the tectonically active west coast of North America, which it means that you've lived with earthquakes, whereas we rather haven't. So I just wondered, given that, that it's your life experience, whether it was that sort of exciting or terrifying or, these, these things just happen, uh, what's the problem, sort of attitude that developed your interest and excitement and then your career into um, in this area of geography. Yeah, so as you said, I grew up with earthquakes. Um, I learned, you know, pretty early age to duck cover and hold or um, to take shelter in a doorway if you couldn't do that. Um, ironically enough, I missed both of the kind of big uh, formative earthquakes in California. So for the, the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake in Southern California, sorry, in Northern California, I was living in Southern California at the time. And then the 1994 Northridge earthquake, which happened in Southern California, I was in Northern California. So, but the, the, the first kind of formative experience, I guess I had with earthquakes was actually in 1992. So I was finishing my geology degree as an undergraduate and the Landers earthquake happened to the east of Los Angeles. And that didn't do a lot of damage because it happened in a pretty uninhabited part of, of California, but it was a big earthquake. I think it was magnitude 7.2. Um, and it was incredibly well expressed at the surface. So um, I had the chance to go after the earthquake out to look at the, the surface rupture, the, the, the actual trace of the faults where they intersected the surface. And it was the first time I'd really had this experience of the detective story in trying to understand what had happened in this in this big event by looking at these clues that are preserved in the landscape. Um, and that was just fascinating, absolutely hooked me. And so I went to graduate school, learned a little bit more about the roles of different geomorphic processes, like why landslides, for example, are so important and what kind of long-term impact they can have in shaping the topography. And, and that was really it. 
I suppose then that was before drones as well, wasn't it? Because some of the drone imagery now is, I think is fantastic for, for showing you the, the movement. It is. And so we were, you know, we were walking the, the trace of this fault. We didn't have drones. I think we'd had some very, very quick aerial photographs that were shot. But, um, you know, it was a lot of this was just that really painstaking kind of almost detective work where you're looking at very subtle changes to the to the surface and trying to work out what the deformation must have been, what the movement must have been on the fault underneath in order to cause that the, those changes. And it 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 really it showed me how much is is kind of preserved by the landscape, but it also showed me how quickly that kind of information is lost. And I think one of the, the really fascinating parts of this science is that, you know, you're always working with really incomplete information. The landscape records lots of things, but um, but you never have the full picture. And so, you're, you know, there's always an element of kind of speculation and hypothesizing and, and a little bit of kind of informed guesswork that goes into it, too. And I, I find that fascinating. It's it makes for difficult teaching at times because things are changing so quickly. And um, even from the, the mechanisms of, of the movements of the plates, so that we're now talking about slab pull and ridge push rather than the, the convection currents. And a lot of textbooks are out of date by the time they're written. They are. And 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 as you said, the 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 data that we've got, you know, the kind of our ability to to capture the the Earth's surface, either as a snapshot or, or, or watching it evolve, I mean, that's changing really quickly too. But I think the constant through that is the, is the, the idea that this is really, really tactile. So, you know, I went to university actually to study physics and, and I very quickly learned in my first year that it was way too abstract for me. But at the same time, I learned that actually geology or, you know, what we would call physical geography here in the UK um, was was quite the opposite. I mean, you could put your hands on the surface, you could put your hands on a fault, you know, you could look for evidence about whether that was active or not. It was right there in front of you, and that that I think is 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 a a, a real kind of uh, feather on our cap in a sense as a science, and that you know we've got that ability to show students exactly what's happening. What's the attitude of people who live there in an earthquake zone? We, we read about it in textbook. UK students will read about the stories of people who live there, but they're always, they're always rather secondhand. Or quite often, you don't, you don't get anything about the people. You learn about the processes rather than their, their sort of attitudes. And does life just go on and people think hmm, it, it might happen or not? Or, or, or is, it, is it even lower in, in the consciousness than that? Um, it's hard to generalize, but, you know, in, in places where I've lived and places where I've worked, you know, earthquakes are a pretty uncommon occurrence, you know, even in a, a really tectonically active part of the world like California or New Zealand, you know, you're talking about something that might only happen, you know, once or twice in a lifetime, you know, a really big kind of, you know, um, impactful event. And so, you know, you could spend a lot of time worrying about earthquakes, but that's pretty quickly going to get superseded by all of the other concerns that 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 crowd in and, and sort of take over your day to day life. And I think there's a really important lesson there when we go in as scientists and try to say something about seismic hazard or say something about the importance of earthquakes and the need to prepare and the need to take steps. You're fighting against that that prioritization that we all do. And you're trying to convince somebody to prioritize something that's important to you as a scientist, 
but is probably going to fall way down in the hierarchy of, of, of immediate threats. And, and that's a really important lesson that I think we need to remember more often than we do. That's interesting, because I think that if you're studying it in the UK, and blimey, you can't miss it, earthquakes and earthquake hazards are at almost every key stage. I've been spending a little bit of time in with primary school students, and we've been looking at earthquakes. But um, the, the Hodder uh, um, sponsoring this round of, of JogPod, their progress in geography resources cover it at key stage three. It's in the Welsh curriculum. It's in all A-level specs. They've all got a unit on forms of seismic hazards and their impacts, um, particularly primary and secondary. So we, we don't, we can't miss it. And it, it feels as though people who live in those sorts of areas will be living with panic almost all the time. Oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen and, and, and next week, next week. Um, I wonder if you could just, Give us a, an overview from your perspective of the distinction, because this, this will be an A-level question, but it's also a GCSE question. Well, it's a key stage three question. The mm -hmm. distinction between primary hazards and secondary hazards. Yeah, so we when we think about primary hazards, we're really thinking about the shaking that takes place. So the accelerations due to the, due to the fault movement. Um, and I suppose, in a sense, the, the surface rupture. So if the fault actually reaches the surface, if the, the, the rupture um, intersects with the surface, that's gonna offset the surface directly and that's gonna give rise to topography, right? It's gonna cause parts of the Earth's surface to be offset relative to, uh, to the others. The secondary hazards then to me are everything that that shaking and that surface rupture does. In other words, you know, what impacts does it have on the surface? So landsliding, for example, avalanche, debris flows, um, in some cases, tsunami, uh, liquefaction of saturated sediments near the surface, all of those kind of secondary hazards. And they're, I think, easy to overlook in lots of ways, but they're potentially really problematic. And I think one of the things that we've learned as a community over the last couple of decades is why they're such an issue and why they're so hard to deal with. Um, and I think there's really two aspects to this. So secondary hazards typically have a very distinct spatial pattern. So if we, if we look at um, the distribution of landslides, for example, that are triggered by a, a big earthquake in the continents, they are often distributed over a pretty broad area. So well away from the surface rupture, in, most, in some cases, well away from the areas of really you know, most intense shaking. And that also means that we have to worry about the downstream impact. So we can have landslides in areas that, you know, that experience shaking, but then the debris that's been freed up by those landslides, once it's remobilized and once it is transported, um, that can have impacts way downstream. So places that didn't really feel the earthquake are a long way from the surface rupture may eventually have to deal with those, those impacts. And that then leads to the second aspect of this, which is temporal persistence. So not only do these things affect large areas in space, they can persist over long periods of time. So, you know, we think of an earthquake as an event, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, it's finished, and then life goes on. But of course, um, we can see, and we've seen repeatedly over the last couple of decades, that the secondary hazards can last for years, sometimes decades, sometimes uh, even centuries. And then 
we have to think about that and sort of plan for that in the way that we respond to the earthquake. I was really surprised with some of the reading that I'd done about how long the time of instability lasts from an earthquake. It, it, uh, it surprised me. You, you've, there was a, a, a paper that you caught, the, the satellite-based emergency mapping using optical imagery. That one was about the 2015 Nepal earthquake. And you talked about the, the, or the, the paper talks about the landslides triggered by earthquakes there. Um, and it, it mentioned years in, in terms of impact afterwards. And unless you know where that, that loosened area is, that must be cause real uncertainty. It does. And it's, it's a problem for the you know, for kind of emergency response and relief effort. But it's also a problem when you start thinking about recovery and reconstruction, because uh, if you build you know, a, a new set of houses, uh, uh, if you relocate a, a, a town, for example, as, as has happened after some of the, the re big recent continental earthquakes, you need to know how that hazard is going to change in space and in time. And if you don't know that, then you're, you're essentially kind of guessing and, and you're taking a big gamble uh, that you're going to get it right. So, yeah, I think one of the real challenges for us is understanding how that hazard evolves over time. Um, and up until, I'd say up until the last five, six years, we really haven't had a good understanding of that. We've never really looked and sort of watched the, the, the pattern of landsliding after a big continental earthquake in order to understand how that hazard changes over time. I, I you know, that really surprised me as well, because in the, in the paper, you also noted that there's no protocol for rapid, like hours to days, humanitarian facing landslide assessment. So nothing for an immediate assessment and, and no public sort of recognition of what's possible. Well, yeah, that's right. The, the, it's difficult. A lot of our understanding about sort of earthquake triggered hazards, particularly around landsliding has come just in the last couple of decades. And that's as a result of a couple of, of, of uh, particular earthquakes. But also we have to remember a lot of the data that we use, the kind of very quickly available, very cheap, high resolution satellite data, this is a pretty recent phenomenon as well. We, up until you know, even just 10 or 15 years ago, satellite data were a lot more expensive. They were a lot harder to, to, uh, to acquire. We didn't have these portals like Google Earth that made um, imagery available over, over big areas for, for long periods of time. So um, yeah, that, that, that gap I think is partly because up until very recently, it just hasn't been possible to look at this problem and do any kind of assessment um, with with the sort of speed that we might need. I think the other issue though is a lot of this depends on what the what the destination is for that information. So who's who's using it? What do they need it for? And what format do they need it in? So what are you generating information for if you're trying to inform a, an emergency response? Who needs the data and, and, and what's the purpose? And, and I think until you get a good understanding of that, it's very difficult to know what to do as a scientist. What do you focus on? Um, what things do you look at in particular? What features do you pull out of this really complicated and, 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 you know, and rapidly changing story in order to package up and make available? That's not a straightforward question. No, I was doing some work when I was at the Geographical Association um, 
about 10 years ago, I was working with Map Action um, uh, and I hadn't heard of them, but it, it seemed like a, a no brainer that you'd have an organization that was filled with GIS experts who would go in as a first response to say, well, you can't send your leaf down that road because it doesn't exist anymore. Look yep. at GIS patterning. And we produced a little activity that, uh, that it was based on their data. It hadn't struck me before, but I, I, I've read since about resources, food, medical aid, just sitting at airports because yep. can get it out. Exactly right. And, um, you know, we, I can I can mostly speak about the experience after the, the Gorkha earthquake in Nepal in 2015. You know, we um, we started looking at the pattern of landsliding there pretty much immediately after the earthquake. So within the first day or two, um, it was pretty clear from the size of the earthquake, from where it was, from what we knew about the you know, the, the, the topography and the, the pattern of historical landsliding, that there was gonna be a big landslide impact and that it might not necessarily be in places that were gonna be really visible. So, you know, a lot of the initial focus after the earthquake was on damage to Kathmandu. Well, Kathmandu, you know, sits in a bowl, uh, it sits in this basin, the, the slopes are relatively low. It's not really the steepest part of the Himalayas. Um, it's the areas to the north of Kathmandu where you get into much higher relief. You have much steeper hill slopes. And that's where we historically have seen a lot more landsliding. The problem is uh, those areas are pretty remote. And particularly in the run-up to the annual monsoon, they're very often cloud covered as well. And so actually getting information on where landslides had occurred which areas were likely to have been most badly affected in those first few days was really difficult. There simply wasn't any imagery available that showed the, the ground surface. And it was only after about four or five days that we started to get these little kind of patches, little windows into what might've been happening on the ground. And those windows were enough to show that actually, yeah, there had been some pretty significant impacts. They were mostly outside of Kathmandu in the, in the, you know, in the, in the mountain and, and, and hilly parts of Nepal. Um, but that it was going to take a while before we could build up anything like a, a reasonably complete picture. So, you know, it wasn't until about seven, eight, nine days after the earthquake that we were actually able to say, look, these are the areas which are likely to have been badly affected. Well, that, that seems pretty quick, but in the context of the humanitarian and relief effort, that's a lifetime. You know, that's a, that's a really long period of time. You know, the, 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 the situational report that is done by the UN happens within the first 72 hours. And the, the next step in that response process is something called the multi-agency or multi-sector um, initial rapid assessment, the MIRA, M-I-R-A. That happens after two weeks. Well, two weeks after the earthquake, you know, we 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 had a we had identified a couple of hundred landslides, but it was mostly just knowing, okay, these valleys are likely to be most affected, these other areas are not, and it's really difficult to base operational decisions on that kind of fragmentary information. I'm going to go back and ask you. I know it's an obvious question, but why do we this this could quite possibly be one posed to students? Why do we need to respond to an earthquake quickly? And then, and then what are the challenges of responding so quickly? Yeah, so the most important aspect of this is 
identifying where people are, um, you know, in, have been directly impacted by the earthquake. So um, if people are buried by debris, if they're buried by collapsed buildings, we need to be able to get to them as quickly as possible to save Before lives. seven to eight days as well. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But then the, the, the kind of wider issue there is even if people aren't directly impacted, their lives are still can are still fundamentally disrupted, right? So um, they may be suffering from loss of shelter. They may not have access to food or clean water. Um, they may not have access to power or hygiene or communications, transport. All these things that we sort of take for granted um, are very easy to, to disrupt in, in an area that's been hit by an earthquake. And so again, reaching some of these populations as quickly as possible is really important. Um, if there's one road into a valley though, and if that road is blocked even in one place by landslides, let alone 20 or 30 places, um, then it, that's gonna be a real challenge. And so um, understanding where those blockages are, understanding sort of what the limits of the, of the usable road network are, and then where you need to rely on other means, either helicopters, if that's available, or even just people bringing things in on foot. Um, that's a critical part of the, that first stage of the response. Would that have all been done prior to uh, satellite imagery? Would that have all been done just through, through local knowledge and, uh, and the relief workers going out and finding what's going yeah, on? Yeah, and, and a, a fair bit of that initial response, even in Nepal, was based on that kind of um, uh, anecdotal evidence. So just, you know, reports that had come in, people who had left some of these areas on foot and had traveled to the capital. Uh, social media was a, a, a big source of initial information. So people would post photographs um, and locations of, of particular earthquake, uh, sorry, particular landslides or particular places where, you know, the road network was blocked. And so a lot of what we did in the first couple of days was to compile that to give us at least an initial picture of where we might go and, and, and look in more detail. One of the figures that surprised me that you quoted was uh, that the... Um up to 25% of earthquake facilities in mountainous areas at least are, are down to landslides. It must be the biggest of all the, the separate different causes. It must be the biggest by quite far. It's a, it's a really difficult number to, um, to pin down um, in part because it's pretty rare that the process gets recorded as a as a sort of an ultimate cause of death so if a building collapses for example did it collapse because of the shaking or did it collapse because it was hit by um you know by by a, by a bunch of boulders triggered by a rockfall um that information is 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 often not available so that estimate um actually comes from, from some work done by um uh mariana budimir and colleagues uh published sort of seven or eight years ago now um, but it, it looks pretty consistent and it seems to be pretty consistent despite the, the setting of the, of, the, of the earthquake. Obviously you need to have enough topography, you need to have sort of you know, places that can fail in order for landslides to be an issue. Um, but where, where we've had big continental earthquakes in mountainous regions, uh, Kashmir earthquake, for example, in Pakistan, the Wenchuan earthquake in, in China, the Chichi earthquake in, in Taiwan, and then more recently in Gorkha, um, it's been a pretty important factor for sure. Is there a critical angle? So when we're talking mountainous, is there a critical sort of set of slopes? And you would say, this is a mountainous area, but these slopes aren't as critical as this other area. 
What we see pretty consistently when we look at landslide occurrence is that the steeper the topography, the more likely landsliding is. And it's a, it's a, it's a pretty consistent relationship. Um, in fact, that's the basis of a lot of our understanding about landslide susceptibility. In other words, you know, where are the places in the landscape that are most likely to fail? Um, if all you have is the slope, then you're, pretty, you're already pretty far towards an answer. Um, even if you don't know anything about the geology, uh, the climate, the land use, any of those other factors, slope will get you a long way towards the answer. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But it is important then, isn't it, to, to, from then to assess the landslide extent and impacts potentially. And when I was reading some of your work, there are several methods, aren't they, for doing this, for assessing the... Um, the, the potential impacts. Yeah, so the, the first thing you can do after a, an earthquake is actually to look at that landslide susceptibility that I already mentioned. So, you know, where are the places where we would expect landsliding to occur? Generally the steepest parts of the, of the topography. And then if we can combine that with an estimate of the pattern of shaking, which is released pretty quickly after the earthquake by the US Geological Survey, for example, and others, then we can get a pretty good idea where those two patterns intersect. So where are the, you know, the steepest parts of the landscape that have also undergone um, pretty severe shaking? And that gives us a, 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 let's say a first order estimate, you know, of the, the areas that are likely to fail. Now that doesn't tell us about individual hillsides, right? We can't say that hill slope is gonna fail and that one's gonna be fine. We're not, we're not you know, our models aren't to that level. So it's only ever gonna be a, a um, an indicative kind of indication of, of, of where the, the most susceptible areas are likely to be. The next thing you can do then, once you've sort of gone through that, um, that initial phase of, of gathering information is actually to look at imagery. So it could be satellite imagery, it could be air photos, um, anything that gives you some kind of overview or synoptic view of the surface and start to map out where those landslides have actually occurred. And then the final way you could approach this is actually to do some kind of automated mapping where you take that imagery, you run it through an algorithm that looks for particular changes in the characteristics of the surface or changes in the, in the image characteristics that are indicative of landsliding and gives you a, an estimate of, of where the landslides are. That final option is by far the quickest and potentially you know, could, could save us a lot of time. The problem is, well, there's two problems really. Um, one is that you're looking for a, often you're looking for a kind of proverbial needle in a haystack. So, you know, the number of hillsides that fail, even in a big earthquake, is much less than the number of hillsides that don't. So, um, you know, the, the signal that you're looking for with those sorts of algorithms isn't always very obvious. You also have to have vegetation or something that changes, you know, when the landslide occurs. If, if this is in a desert and the, there's very little vegetation, then the hillside before and after a landslide might actually look pretty similar, at least as far as the image is concerned. Um, but the other problem is that there are lots of things that look like landslides on images. You can get something that looks like an a landslide by clearing a field, for example, chopping, chopping down some trees, building a road, and so actually identifying which of those changes in the image are landslide and which of them are not is not a straightforward thing. I think we're getting better. 
And we're getting closer to being able to do that kind of automated mapping with, with little or no kind of human intervention, but I don't think we're there yet. And we certainly weren't there in, in 2015. How could the images be better um, collected, the satellite imagery, to make this more valuable for you? Is, is there a process that you could ask the satellite imagery, uh, whoever it is, the satellite, to take an image in a, in a certain way? I haven't phrased that very well, but I hope you get the meaning. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a fair question. Uh, one of the trade-offs is around resolution and, um, and rectification. So um, you might think that, you know, we want the highest possible resolution imagery. In other words, you know, images where the, the, the size of an individual pixel is, is, is really small, maybe only a, a meter or a couple of meters. Um, so that we can see the most detail and really be able to, to identify the, uh, the edges of, of a particular landslide. The problem with that kind of really high resolution imagery, especially in a really steep part of the world like Nepal, is that it often suffers from real problems with re rectification. So um, images, you know, if the, if the image isn't looking straight down, then you will um, sort of get layover of some slopes, you'll get shadowing of other slopes. And what you see is this kind of warped view of what the, what the surface actually looks like. If you ever zoom in in Google Earth and really get in, in detail in, a, in a, a, a steep part of the world, like, like the Himalayas, um, you'll see what I mean. The images don't sit very nicely on the topography and in places they get really stretched and distorted. So it's actually better to have images that are lower resolution, maybe 10 or 20 meters per pixel but where you have a bigger uh, swath that's covered by a single image and where you don't have all these, these issues with, with uh, distortion of the image. So that kind of medium resolution imagery, it turns out to be really useful. So something like Landsat or um, now Sentinel-2, which is a, an optical sensor um, that is run by the European Space Agency, 10 meter imagery that's available every five or 10 days, um, turns out to be really useful for this kind of thing. Yeah, I've, I've watched actually. To, I went to the Ordnance Survey in Southampton, and I was watching them rectifying images because beneath um, beneath a road bridge, the shape had been distorted, so it didn't actually look like a uh, like a, a trough, which it yep. was. Yeah, so exactly. they were having to alter the image. Exactly. Yeah, it was bizarre. So, well, how quickly can a landslide assessment be made then? Currently, given that we've got some of these problems. How, how quickly can you do it? So the answer to that depends on how much capacity you've got. So how many people do you have to, to do the mapping? How quickly can you get the imagery? That's probably less of an issue now because of, of providers like Google Earth and, and whatnot, platforms, I should say, like Google Earth. And then how quickly can you actually see the ground surface? Um, so that latter point was actually the biggest limitation after the Gorka earthquake. Um, it took us almost two months before we had a reasonably complete cloud-free picture of most of the area that was affected by landsliding. So um, we published a, a map at the end of June. Remember the earthquake happened on the 25th of April, 2015. And by the end of June, we were able to say um, with more or less complete certainty, this is the areas that, you know, these are the areas that, that were most affected. Well, two months is a long time, and um, you know there were there were 
the, 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 the kind of initial response relief effort was completely finished by then and, and, and Nepal was into the recovery phase. So that really got us thinking then about the, the kind of value of this sort of producing this sort of data set and mapping it onto this, this really rapid timescale for response. Just to give you a bit of, of, of context, you know, the definitive academic study of this was published in 2018. It was a group at the University of Michigan and, and USC in the US and a couple of other institutions. They did a fantastic job. They used really high resolution satellite imagery. They mapped about 24,000 landslides across the, the whole earthquake affected area in Nepal. Um, it's a beautiful data set. It's available for free. You know, anybody can go and download it, but it wasn't published for three years. So, you know, that's a very different product with a very different purpose. Um, and that's, you know, that's the, the way we often think about this as, as, as scientists, but actually that's completely divorced, completely separate from the, uh, from the humanitarian response. I was going to ask you about the outputs from the assessments, because it, it's interesting that some, some of the outputs you want immediately, some of them you want to be able to study so you're ready for the next time, but that's a, that's a long time, isn't it? Three years. I hadn't, I also hadn't really computed the problem of cloud cover for such a long time because when we see satellite images somebody somewhere has has taken the best one <laughs> exactly people are sitting there for, for a week two weeks and oh, no, i still can't see anything absolutely so um you know the the nepal earthquake happened at the end of april the monsoon in nepal generally starts around mid to late june so we had about a two month window before the onset of the monsoon. The reason why that's significant is that we know from past experience that the monsoon triggers a lot of landslides in Nepal. Hmm. And we also know uh, from some of these earlier earthquakes that I mentioned, especially the, um, the, the Chichi earthquake in 1999 in Taiwan, that heavy rainfall in an area that's experienced a large landslide typically gives you many more landslides than normal. So, you know, the ground is damaged. It's, it's kind of almost primed to fail by the earthquake. And so once you dump a bunch of rain on that, you should expect a lot of landslide activity, much more than you would normally expect, and probably in areas that don't normally fail. And so we, we knew, you know, when the Gorka earthquake happened that we had this window to try to understand where those areas were before the, the onset of the monsoon. Um, and you could just about get a picture of where those areas were. The monsoon hit then, cloud cover becomes you know, almost, almost complete. So you only get a few windows. And really the next time you can look at this problem is in October or November, because that's the next time that you've got sort of you know, decent cloud-free imagery across, across the whole area. So what we've been doing since the earthquake has actually been looking at this before and after the monsoon. So mapping the pattern of landslides in the spring, there's no point in trying to map during the monsoon because you're, you're just gonna be frustrated. So you wait then again, and you look at the pattern again in, at the end of the year in say November, and then you see how the, the, the picture has changed over that time period. What, as we've been talking, I've been puzzling over this, and I just wonder why it's, there haven't been clear and widely accepted guidelines for this humanitarian facing assessment for, for landslides. Why hasn't it been developed yet? 
I think part of that comes back to that availability of data. So, you know, even the, I mentioned the, the 1994 Northridge earthquake back in the, you know, the beginning of our chat. Um, that has a landslide inventory associated with it. It was one of the first really systematic landslide inventories that was collected and made publicly available by the US Geological Survey. That was done on the basis of aerial photographs. So they had to organize uh, a aerial photo campaign, to fly the whole epicentral area, and then make you know use those data to to generate the the um, the, the the landslide data set. So part of it is around uh, availability of data. Part of it, I think, is around a lack of awareness, perhaps, of this persistence and and why you might want to understand the pattern of landsliding. You know why would why would you if, if you view the earthquake as a as an event, you know that simply needs to be responded to. Why would you want to understand sort of the areas where these this is going to be a persistent hazard, for example? Um, and so a lot of the work that we've done since then has been trying to show why that information is useful, how it can be used, um, and and how that hazard actually evolves over time. And then I think part of it also comes down to the fact that you have lots of different organizations that have a stake in this, um, all of which have their own data requirements, all of which work with data through particular portals, uh, are looking for particular pieces of information at different periods of time, and coordinating that um, is a really difficult thing. Where are we at with that then now? Is it still pretty disparate and we're not at a position where it's all going to happen? So I think we're in a better place than we were. I think we learned a lot from the Gorka earthquake. I think there's a, a better understanding now of the importance of this kind of information for preparedness. Um, I think there's been, there's been quite a bit of effort on the part of the humanitarian community to organize around a, a smaller number of portals. There's been effort on the part of the remote sensing community to try to get a, um, a better understanding, for example, of the types of information that can be generated. So there's something called the Committee for Earth Observation Satellites, CEOS, that's been um, piloting a number of different working groups to look at protocols for disaster response. And landsliding is, is one of the things that, the, that they've been looking at. So what do we need to do? What kind of information can be generated? Very much building on that um, that paper by Jack Williams that you were talking about earlier. The GEO's Geography Quality Marks are prestigious awards which recognise, reward and promote quality and progress in geography leadership, curriculum development and learning and teaching in schools. A powerful process of self-evaluation and reflection, the frameworks incorporate the key messages of the 2019 Education Inspection Framework, supporting schools to develop a curriculum with high quality intent, implementation and impact. As a school working towards the award, you'll receive access to support, guidance and exemplification of quality geography through our webinars and online portal and assessment and detailed feedback on your submission so that you know where to focus your next steps. You'll also become part of our international network of over 1500 geography quality mark schools. For further information or to register for the 2023 cohort, please go to our website at geography.org.uk. It's, it's quite surprising, I think, well it was for me, to, to find out, and you've, you've touched on this as we've been talking, that much of our existing understanding of, of this post-seismic landsliding comes from just two earthquakes. There's the, the earthquake in Taiwan in 1999, which is quite some time ago, and then 
the Weshuan earthquake in China in 2008. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, these things don't happen very often, right? So we, um, we're constantly fighting the last war in the sense that, you know, we're learning through experience, trying to apply that learning then to the next event that comes along, realizing that that's an imperfect way of looking at the world and we've got to learn some new lessons and then the cycle goes on from there. So um, the Chichi earthquake in 1999, I think taught us about this, this idea of preconditioning because the, the pattern of landslides that we saw in the earthquake was very similar to the pattern of landslides that were then triggered in a subsequent typhoon. And so, you know, the same areas that failed in the earthquake were failing again in the typhoon. And that really, I think, alerted people to this idea that that shaking, even if it doesn't cause a landslide directly, weakens the rock and makes it more, more likely to fail the next time you, 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 you perturb it. Um, and so that was, a, that was a really valuable lesson because now we have a pattern that we can look for uh, in the landscape and a kind of an expectation. And then, I think the, the Wenchuan earthquake taught us partly about, um, partly about the persistence of this hazard, partly about sort of how long we might have to wait for this debris to move through the landscape and, and the, the, you know, the kind of secondary hazard chain that, that, that results from all this landslide debris, which is now sitting around in these mountainous catchments, waiting to be remobilized, waiting to be turned into debris flows, um, and waiting to move down through the river system and all the, the kind of consequent impacts that can have in terms of flooding and aggradation, loss of agricultural land. Um, but it also taught us something that's a little more long-term and I think is an interesting kind of corollary to this, which is, you know, that if we think of these earthquakes as, as building topography, you know, lifting up rock relative to sea level, accomplishing some of the rock uplift and sort of building the, the, the mountain range higher. The landslides, of course, are working against that because they're taking that same mass of volume and they're taking it off the hill slopes, moving it down into the rivers where it can be transported away. So these are kind of working in, in, in opposition to each other. And so um, I think the Wenchuan earthquake was one of the first where we actually could look at this in terms of some kind of mass balance or volume balance which has got to be important for the long-term evolution of the surface. You know, if we're, if we're building uh, parts of the surface up in earthquakes, we're tearing them back down again in land, with landsliding, which one of those is dominant and how does that dominance change and how does that balance change um, over the course of, of hundreds of thousands or millions of years? And again, we've now got the tools, we've now got the data sets that we can use to start to, to answer that question. Over shorter terms, how, how useful have the government, particularly in China, say, how, how useful have they found that information? How much have they considered that in terms of managing those in unstable slopes? Or are there just too many? I think that that mass balance question is really about the growth of these uh, mountain ranges over very long time periods. It's really not relevant for how we, how we live in those landscapes, how we interact with those landscapes. The persistence problem is very much relevant. And that's something that I think we probably still have lessons to learn. So, you know, uh, one of the most frustrating things going to some of these areas after a large earthquake is seeing the, the reconstruction 
and particularly reconstruction, you know, construction of buildings that are earthquake safe, that are built to code and everything, but where that reconstruction is taking place in areas which are likely to be affected by landslides. Now you can build the, the best building in the world, the most seismically resistant building in the world, but if it's in the wrong place, it may not collapse, but it probably won't be very usable. And, um, and it's a tremendous waste of time and waste of, of resources as well, particularly in places where those resources are scarce and where reconstruction is, you know, is, is really limited by, by how, much, uh, how much money can be spent. So I think we have a job to do in understanding better that this is not just about building better buildings and you know, building resistance, building long-term resilience to earthquakes is not just about building codes. It's also about where we put those buildings and where we put our infrastructure and the choices that we make around that. And one of the, you know, the, one of the, the kind of take-home messages from a lot of these recent continental earthquakes is that really small distances can make a huge difference. Putting something 10 or 20 meters on either side can uh, make a huge difference in terms of how exposed it is to, to landsliding and debris flows. So if we can make that choice, and we can't always make that choice, but if we can, um, then we should be, we should be making use of that information. I, yeah, that's that's interesting actually because uh, when you look at some of these things that uh, people are videoing and then putting up on YouTube, you think, why on earth are you stood there? And actually, they're stood in quite a safe place, but they're watching something, a huge movement within within meters of where they're standing, but they exactly. know very well that, that where they are is safe. For sure, but we also have to bear in mind that you know that choice is not always free and it's often constrained by who owns the land, how that land is used, what the kind of power relationships are. So, you know, it's not, it's really easy to sit here as a scientist and say, people should move out of exposed areas. If it were that easy, of course, we wouldn't, you know, the, the, we wouldn't have um, the impacts that we have in disasters. So um, I think it's really important that that is considered, but it's one of a number of different constraints that have to be balanced. I want to take you back now to the Gorka earthquake because that's a really interesting one. We have a case study for a number of students at, uh, at A-level, the one in the poll. Um, so we, by 2015, we knew more, um, but we've still got much to learn. So what happened in that one? And, and what more did we learn from that event? So what we've, learned over the last seven years by looking at how the, the pattern of landsliding has evolved is that that persistence is really important. So um, what we see now is that there are actually more landslides in the landscape than there were on the day of the earthquake. So, you know, the earthquake triggered a couple tens of thousands of landslides. Exactly how many depends on sort of how hard you look, but you know, certainly on the order of 15 or 20,000 landslides. There was more landsliding and, and even more area that was affected by landsliding after that first monsoon in 2015. And actually the area that's affected has stayed high um, since that time, it hasn't really gone back to normal. What has changed is that the locations, the areas that are directly affected have shifted. So we now see areas further up in the in the catchments so areas that at you know sort of higher positions within the river river valleys are being affected by landsliding 
we see that a lot of the landslide deposits are being remobilized and moved down through the river network, and in some cases into the, the kind of major rivers, the, the, the big trunk streams that, that drain the Himalayas. So that, that's really important because that has an impact on the reconstruction, has an impact on sort of the continued impact on the road network, but it's also a very different pattern of landsliding than people were used to before the earthquake. So, you know, there's a lot of experience with landsliding in Nepal. It happens every year. You know, there are landslides that are triggered by the monsoon. Generally speaking, there's also a lot of, of really good local knowledge around those, those impacts. So people know, you know, that which hill slopes tend to fail, which parts of the road network tend to be washed out, which areas need to be avoided when there's heavy rain. There's a lot of that kind of um, local knowledge that's been developed. The problem with an event like this is it changes the pattern. And so you get landslides happening in places that used to be stable. And so a lot of that local knowledge then has to be recalibrated and, and that takes time. One of the things we're really trying to do now is to find ways to build that local knowledge into the planning. So how do we take this scientific view and merge it or supplement it or, or you know, really uh, enhance it with this understanding that people have about the places that they know are likely to, to, to fail. Because if we can do that, then we're, we're taking, you know, these different, we're using these different tools and we're taking as much information as we can to apply to this, this really complicated problem. That must be quite difficult because perhaps you're taking the message to people who possibly can't even read or write. But there's, it's not about, it's not really about taking the message to them. It's about trying to find ways to take, trying to find ways to capture that local understanding, but also trying to find ways where the scientific understanding can feed in. So um, Nepal went through a big reorganization of its, of its government uh, four or five years ago. It has a new constitution. It has a new federal system. A lot of the responsibility for disaster risk reduction has now been devolved to a very local level to the, to the municipalities. Um, of which there are about 750 across the country. So there is a need for those municipalities now to draw on as much information as they can to, to try to understand what are the, the, the things, you know, what are the, what are the major risks that they face? What can they do at local level to prepare for those? So there's an opportunity here to bring some of that scientific understanding in, but what's really important is not to see that as a panacea. That's not gonna, that's not, you know, it's not just like we need to make some maps and, and that will solve the problem. It's finding ways then to bring that into the conversation along with that local knowledge um, and really support those local governments in making these sorts of decisions about land use, about reconstruction, about um, sort of siting of infrastructure and things like that. That's interesting. So what's the process for that then? How do, how is, how do you, at, at your sharp end it, as a scientist, work with the people who are in, in the field? So part of this is about engaging with the government. So the, the planning that happens for the annual monsoon um, is coordinated by the national government in, in collaboration with the United Nations. It's called the Resident Coordinator's Office that, that oversees this. Um, so we're working with them to try to get some of this information into the annual planning. The UN Resident Coordinator's Office oversees something called an Emergency Response Preparedness Plan. There's one of these every year that's prepared for the monsoon. 
There's one that's updated every couple of years for the next large earthquake. Um, those are fascinating reading because in a sense, they determine or specify what each part of the humanitarian system will do if there's a, you know, a really damaging monsoon or if there's a large earthquake. Um, I think for, for teachers who are listening to this, those are a, a fantastic resource because they, they tell you exactly what these different parts of the, of the humanitarian system think are their priorities, what their, their kind of plans are. For me, reading those plans, one of the most interesting things is that there's very little science that underpins it. So despite all of the understanding that we have, or that we think we have about earthquakes, for example, or monsoon rainfall, there's not a lot of that information that's actually incorporated into the plan. And so one of the things that we're doing in our research is working with the UN, working with the national government to try to provide some kind of science base, some kind of knowledge that can, can underpin that planning. But then the flip side of that is to work with the, some of these municipalities as well. So to go to the, to the municipalities and uh, actually talk to the community groups, talk to the, um, to the local government officials about the needs that they have, the decisions that they're making, the priorities that they have, and then find ways in which we can align with that. Comes back to what we were talking about before, right? Planning for an earthquake is not high on anybody's priority. We think it's really important, but we would think that because we're doing research on earthquakes. So it's finding language and finding opportunities um, to allow some of that work to take place while not writing in roughshod and, and sort of saying, this is the most important thing. You have to drop everything else that you're doing and, and pay attention to us. But, but if, if they're not paying so much attention to the science, what are they paying attention to? What are the, what, where do they draw their conclusions if there's less science that you, than you'd like? So uh, there's an issue, I guess, about what science is necessary. Right, so you know, we might argue about how large the 1505 earthquake was in Western Nepal. Was it a magnitude 8.4, 8.6? Uh, you know, did the did the surface rupture uh, extend into northern India, or did it stop closer to the Nepal border? Those are important scientific questions, perhaps, but less important if you're trying to 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 plan a response. Um, I think that the challenge for us is identifying where those, you know, where those gaps are, and but also which science actually relevant, um, and then finding ways to to feed it into the to the process. How happy do you feel now about Nepal's preparedness? When the next earthquake comes, how confident do you feel they'll be able to manage it? I think it's it's always a process of learning. I think the, the 2015 earthquake in Nepal was an interesting one because it wasn't the earthquake that everyone was expecting. It wasn't as large as was anticipated and it didn't have the direct impact on Kathmandu and the more populated parts of, of the middle hills and the, and the Terai in Nepal that everybody expected. Um, and so in that case, it was an interesting opportunity to have some of these conversations without necessarily having something that was completely catastrophic. I think there have been very large historical earthquakes in Nepal. When those recur, they will have much more impact than the Gorkha earthquake did. 
So the Gorka earthquake, I think, was a very useful way of, I say useful, it was, a, it was an opportunity um, to maybe alert parts of the government to and, and parts of the humanitarian community as well to what was possible and to open up some of that conversation, some of those conversations. Um, but I think, you know, we're always, like I said, we're always learning, right? And we have a better understanding now than we did before 2015 of what kind of impacts you get in these big continental earthquakes. Just like we have a better understanding in 2015 than we did before 2008 and so on and so on. So um, there will be another big earthquake. Uh, it will happen somewhere in the continents in the next five to 10 years. It will probably happen on a fault that we don't really know very much about where, or a fault that we maybe didn't think was particularly active. And yeah, we'll learn something more from that as well. But I'd like to think that each one of these gets us towards a, a, a more prepared and potentially more resilient place. One of the things that I read, uh, of many, because I've said several that, that have interested me while I've been doing this, but <clears throat> you talk about the results when you, when you did this planning uh, for the worst case scenario in Nepal, you suggest that preparing for a worst case scenario may place an unnecessarily large burden on the limited resources. So therefore, the resources inhibit the preparation to an extent. To a large extent, depending on the country as well, Bhutan, I suppose, would would be even uh, more uh, at risk because of their limited resources. I think that's true, and I, I also think there's a psychological aspect to this. Um, if you start to ask people what they would do to prepare for a catastrophic event, uh, for a lot of people, the answer is, "Well, nothing. There's nothing I can do." And you know, the danger I think in 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 always looking at the worst case is that you can actually almost have a, the reverse effect than you want and, and you know, sort, of, sort of make people more fatalistic. So one of the, one of the things that, that some groups have tried is actually identifying some kind of event or some set of circumstances, some sort of scenario that's not the worst case, but might be perhaps you know, the, the, the maximum credible earthquake or the biggest earthquake we might expect in a, in a, in a, you know, in a shorter time period. Because that then allows you to start actually making discrete, you know, discrete plans and actually thinking about, okay, well, what can be done? You know, what, what elements do we need to put in place now so that when that happens, um, you know, we're not completely exposed? I think there's a lot to be gained from that. Um, and even if the big event does happen, then you've already taken some of the steps that you need in order to prepare for it. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a different way of looking at it entirely. So how, how do you want to look forward to the, to the future? Where does your work go next? What are you hoping for? Um, and what would be your best case scenario? I think we've, we've got a, a, a project at the moment that's, that's, like I said, working on planning and preparedness in Nepal. I think we still have some ways to go before I feel like we have all of the potential hazards that are captured. Um, you know, so we've very much been looking at these, I say we, we as a community have very much been looking at earthquake impacts sort of almost in isolation. You know, the, the scenarios that have been produced, the impacts of a, of a future earthquake uh, have tended to look at shaking, for example, and, you know, building collapse and the loss of life due to that. It's very hard to find scenarios that make any kind of quantitative estimate of 
you know, how much landsliding would we expect? How much, how much disruption would we expect due to landsliding? How much disruption would we expect due to debris flows in the subsequent monsoon and whatnot? So factoring that into our planning, I think is gonna be really important. Factoring that into our planning for the annual monsoon is gonna be important as well. So right now, you know, the, the monsoon planning is really based on areas that have flooded. And yet we know that in the hills and the mountains, we get landslides every year. So how do we build a plan that accounts for these different hazards, different parts of this chain of linked hazards as we move down through the mountain range? I think that's a, a really important kind of short to medium term goal. It'd be interesting to see how many A-level students whose teachers have listened to this <laughs> change the impact of their or the, the thread of their questions and, and uh, of answers and look more at uh, the impact of landslides rather than the shaking of buildings. It's been fascinating talking to you today. Thank you very much, Alex. It's been a, a real insight. Preparing for it was fascinating too. I, I learned a lot through reading some of the papers. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, and yeah. I hope that uh, people do follow up on this. Uh, there are certainly lots of things to learn still, lots of avenues to explore. <laughs>